Acts 18. Continuing our study here through the uh, book of Acts. Before we get started, let's do the smart, smart thing and have a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, good to be here this morning. Thank you for the time and just pray you would as always teach and we would listen so that your spirit guide and direct. And Lord, just pray for all the kids back there in the classrooms. I pray that you'd bless that as well too. Just lead and guide as we would just get into your word and grow us in your name. Amen. All right, Acts 18. Continuing our study through the book of Acts, we're on Paul's second missionary journey. And he is now going to the city of Corinth. Now, the city of Corinth is a town just full of sexual morality and and debauchery. And this is where the Lord has planted him for right now for this season. That's kind of a big deal. You know, generally speaking, we make this joke out here a lot that we want to be missionaries, but we want to be missionaries to the upper middle class. That's where we want to be missionaries to. And it's not where we want to go, it's where the Lord wants to send us, where the Lord feels there's the need, and then that's where we go. And so Corinth was the place where Paul was going to go. Now he's been continuing on this second missionary journey. So he arrives in Corinth in verse 1. It says, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So he stayed, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked for their by occupation. They were tent makers. So we're introduced to a lot of information here a little bit. First off, we're introduced to Aquila and Priscilla. Now, Aquila and Priscilla are going to play a key role here, especially when we get to them next week. And I hope you can be here for that, because Aquila and Priscilla are a fascinating couple. They're a married couple, and any time they're mentioned in the Bible, they're always mentioned together. And I love that aspect of it. That's something that Dawn and I have talked about before in our marriage, is this idea of a ministry of Aquila and Priscilla serving and ministering together. And what a blessing that can be. Now, Aquila, his name means an eagle. And I guess when I think of Aquila, I always think of this very godly man that just, just holds himself in honor and prestige. It's just this man of God. And I think when we get a chance to meet him up in heaven, he is just going to be this godly man that you'd want to be around, you'd respect, and you can learn from. I find it very interesting that Priscilla's name means ancient. I don't know if he'd like to marry older women or what, but her name means ancient. So maybe when we get to heaven, she'll look really old. I don't know. But... So here they are, and they come because of Claudius. Now, Claudius was the Roman emperor. He was the fourth Roman emperor, and he was the emperor for about 13 years. And about right around 49 AD is when they think this happened, is that he then sent the Jews out, and so therefore, Priscilla and Aquila came to Corinth. Now, so to put a time frame here, we're pushing maybe 20 years since Jesus Christ died on the cross, just to kind of give you a little bit of a background and perspective. But this is a God-ordained thing, because now, verse 3, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. Priscilla and Aquila were tent makers. Paul was a tent maker. Now this is where it gets kind of interesting. Paul is a rabbi. He would be required to have a trade. That was one of the requirements of that, is that you had something to fall back on, if you would. So Paul would spend his time being a tent maker making tents, but then also then using that time to spread the gospel. Now, I find this very interesting because the next passage, verse 4, talks about him reasoning in the synagogue. Paul at this time doesn't have his people with him. Verse 5, Silas and Timothy finally show up after some time. I have noticed that we're much more effective in the faith when we have people serving with us. And when Priscilla and Aquila show up, you really see that ministry in Corinth start to take off. It's not that Paul couldn't have gone out by himself. I don't want to make that claim, and I'm sure he did go out by himself. But having people with you encourages you. You know, I remember 
when Richard first came on staff out here, I remember talking to Dawn, and I was going to go do some hospital visits and some other visits, and Richard was going to go along with me. And she said, why are you taking Richard with you? She goes, you know, you used to do that by yourself. I said, I know. That's what's so nice about having another person. There's just that tag team feel. There's that, that unity, that strength. I've been, there's been many times I've been talking to an individual out here, and if you have that other brother or sister with you, how much of a blessing that is because the Spirit can speak through them as well. There's been times in counseling or conversations, I don't know what to say, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, what to say here? And this other person has this amazing words of wisdom. And you step back and you say, wow, I'm so thankful there's that partner, that partner there. Another thing I see in this idea is this passage of Paul working a secular job. You know, a lot of times when people get saved, we have this dream of we want to go into full-time ministry. And I'm blessed that I get a chance to do that. And I've got a chance to be full-time out here now for, I lose track, like 13, 14 years. But the first season that I was out here, I worked a secular job and also then taught out here. And there was always that part of you that just, oh, Lord, if I could just be full-time in church. What a blessing that would be is to have that be your life. Just to be able to pray with people and prepare lessons and etc. What a blessing that is. For the vast, vast majority of believers, it doesn't work out that way. And you have a secular job and then you have ministry. Now this is where I feel like we need to change our mindset sometimes on our jobs. A lot of times we look at jobs as go, work, get it done, get home. And it's almost this thing we have to do. I think there's two things that need to be said on this. The first one is that secular job is also your ministry. It's also your mission field. I'm assuming most of you that work probably work with a lot of non-believers. You're getting paid to witness for Christ. You're getting paid to do your job, of course, but you're also getting paid to be around these non-believers. And when you look at it from that perspective, that's your mission field. And so often I hear Christians say this, and I don't disagree with this because I have this and I'm blessed. Oh, wouldn't it be great to have this job where you're just surrounded by believers? Well, that would be great. But then who are you going to talk to about the Lord? I'll talk to other Christians. We'll just encourage each other. That is encouraging. But what happens is you get a bunch of spiritually fat Christians. We're supposed to be out there working and moving for the Lord. And what a blessing it is that if you do have a job that you're out there with non-believers, that's a mission field for you. And also, you're being blessed, you're being paid, then the Lord says also that's part of the blessing of it, that you can then use your resources to help further the gospel being spread. So here's Paul making tents, but as he's making tents, he's working with Aquila, he's working with Priscilla. We don't know for sure. Some people believe that maybe they got saved through Paul's uh, ministry with them as making tents, that maybe they were saved when they came. We don't know. But obviously it was a blessing together because they're mentioned numerous times in Acts. And Paul mentions them by name in some of his other epistles. These guys were a wonderful blessing to him. So what does he get to do? He makes those tents. But verse 4, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greek. When Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. That idea of reason, it's an interesting word. That word reason means to make one think differently. That's the goal. So when you run into people that aren't saved, it's through the Spirit to talk to them, and hopefully they think differently about the Lord. Now, I think a lot of times we get evangelism wrong. We run into somebody we've never met. So we say, are you saved or not saved? If they're saved, okay, we kind of push them off to the side. There's no reason to talk to you. You're already saved. Okay, you're not saved. Let me tell you about heaven. Let me tell you about hell. So here's heaven. Here's hell. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, and would you like to know Christ? 
Basically, 30 seconds, that's all I need. Let me tell you about Jesus, and you've got to make a decision. Now, that works. You're presenting the truth. But what you really see in the Bible is this idea of reasoning them with this for building this relationship with them and talking to them. You know, when I find out someone's not saved, don't take this the wrong way. I'm fascinated by that. I usually ask them, so why aren't you saved? Give me your reasons on why you choose to reject Jesus Christ. I would love to talk to you about this. And then let's go one step further. If they call themselves an atheist or maybe uh, not necessarily an atheist, an agnostic, I love those conversations. Tell me why the evidence you see makes you claim that there's not a God. And I don't mean that in an all-attacking way. I'm fascinated by that. Let's sit down and talk about it. Because when you reason with them, verse 4, let's talk about who the Lord is and the evidence for that and what He does in your life. And you build this relationship, you get a chance to share. What a blessing that is. Sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes we're in the business of just planting seeds. Sometimes we're in the business of getting a chance to pick the fruit off the tree. Look at verse 6. When they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to him, Your blood be upon your own heads, for I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Basically Paul is saying, I am so done with this, I literally want to shake your dust off of me. That way I carry nothing of you out because you have rejected Jesus Christ. Now we'll get to that point here in a second. But let's put all these passages together. Verse 4, reasoning with people, talking to them, sharing your faith. Looking for conversations where, Lord, open this door. I had a situation recently where there was a uh, guy ran into, and I knew him. And we started talking about the Lord and talking about walk with Christ, etc. And I asked him, you know, are you saved? He goes, I don't know. So we talked. Talked about the Lord, etc. Got a chance to talk to him a few days later. Same thing. Are, are you saved? No, I don't think I am. Do you want to be saved? Explain to him heaven. Explain to him how. Explain to him Jesus. Do you want this? No, his response was, no. He doesn't. Now, when I was a new believer, that would have crushed me. And I would have stopped and I would have shoved the gospel so far down his throat. I would have made sure he walked out of there screaming, I'm saved. Now I realize I planted seeds. Somebody else may run into this guy this week, next week, and continue on the conversation. I had an opportunity, and with that opportunity, you present the truth of Jesus Christ, you reason with them, and then you realize that's now between them and the Lord. Had a situation not too long ago where I ran into a guy, and this is a guy I know. Uh, some of his family comes out here to church. He's popped out sporadically, and I just, you know what? Why not ask him? Hey, why don't you come out to church? Why don't you just come be a part of this? Hey, do you want to come out to church? His answer? No. Okay. Let it go. Reason with them. Talk to them. Share the gospel with them. Allow the Lord to work on the heart. Because if you really look at it, look at verse 6. They opposed him and blasphemed him. There is sometimes that negative response. Go back to the parable of the sower and the seed. Four seeds. Do you remember this? Not to talk in percentages, but 25% right off the top went nothing to do with the Lord. When you get a chance to share the gospel, I'm not saying this is set in stone, one-fourth of the people are just going to completely say, not interested, don't want it, no thanks. Okay, now you're going to run into another group that's going to want it. They're going to accept it. They're going to be excited. And in two weeks, you'll never see them again. Then you're going to run into another group that's going to want it. They're going to accept it. But boy, life is just really busy. I really want to go deeper with the Lord, but let me get through these situations at work. I really want to make that commitment to Christ, but right now life is just so busy. And we use this phrase out here a lot recently. Don't let life get in the way of living. This idea of the business of life, the Bible says that that group is choked out. 
Which then leaves us with this 25%, the Bible says, that really get it. They plant, they grow, and they're the ones that are out there serving the Lord. Think about that. 25% don't want it. 25%, I love it. They disappear in a couple weeks. Another 25% choked out by life leaves one-fourth. So when you see Paul, he is going to be opposed. He is going to be blasphemed. And he says, I'm moving on. I do not believe in any way whatsoever in verse 6. This is anger. This is frustration. This is the reality. If you're in a farming community, you don't go out and plant your corn in January. It doesn't make any sense. And when you say, fine, I'm not going to plant in January. I'm going to wait to April. That's wisdom. If you would go out on our drive for here with the carport, and you would say, James, I really think the church needs beautiful sunflowers. I'm going to plant them on that concrete. You can plant water all you want. They're not going to grow. There's wisdom in looking at the ground. Paul realized at this time, they were not going to accept it. It's time to move on. And so he says, your blood be upon your own heads. This is a choice they made. And since they made that choice, they're choosing to reject. Paul says, that's your choice. Now, it's interesting that phrase, your blood be upon your heads. Because according to the Bible, when the blood is upon your head, that means you're saying, I've made the choice to reject this. I take the consequences of what this is. My choice, my decision. But the Bible also uses this phrase that someone's blood be on your hands. You don't have to turn there, but in Ezekiel 3, Ezekiel 3 verse 18, listen to this. It says, When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, that same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. God is speaking to Ezekiel, basically telling Ezekiel, listen, I am giving you the warning. And your job is then go present that warning to other people. If you choose to not present that warning to other people, he goes, their blood is on your hands. Paul is saying their blood is on their head, meaning I have made clear salvation and this is a choice they are. They're choosing to reject this. And as they choose to reject this, that is between them and the Lord. I am clean. This does not mean that his heart's not broken. This does not mean that he's not care for them. He cares deeply. But he stops and he says, there's nothing else I can do. I think back to that individual I had two opportunities to talk to here recently. We made salvation abundantly clear. He has to choose to accept that. I firmly believe the Lord will either bring him back to get a talk to him again or bring somebody else into his life. Seeds are planted. Seeds are being watered. We'll see what happens. But Paul said at this time right here, right now, I'm clean. I have presented the truth to you. And now you chose to reject. Why did he do this? Verse 5, he was compelled by the Spirit. Some of your translations may say pressed. See, look how this all comes together. He's got his his support staff that comes in Aquila and Priscilla. Then verse 4, he reasons with them. And then he reasons and persuades them. Because why? Verse 5, he's compelled by the Spirit. He feels burdened to do this. I don't mean to step on your toes. I'm not trying to make you feel uncomfortable. I'm just literally asking you. When's the last time you were compelled or pressed in the spirit to share the gospel with somebody? Boy, what's happened to that? Compelled or pressed to share the truth of Jesus with the dying world. It's amazing how many things we feel burdened by. My yard's getting out of hand. I feel compelled to mow it. I have to mow my yard now. But the kitchen's out of shape. I've got to get the kitchen in order right now. We feel compelled and burdened to do so many things that have nothing to do with eternity. But yet when it comes to spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's like the last thing on our list. I mean, we think about it. But is that what drives us? So we've got to get our priorities in order. 
If we truly believe that we're supposed to seek first the kingdom of God, if we truly believe that Jesus Christ is returning soon, if we truly believe that we have the answer of heaven and hell and the truth, that should drive us in all that we do and all that we say. Not these things of life, but we have the words of life that we're supposed to be out there doing things with. It's so easy to allow life to get in the way of living. Don't take this the wrong way. But for many years, I allowed the church to dictate everything I did. I'd get up in the morning, the first thing I would do is, what emails did I miss at night? Did I miss any texts? Anything like that. And everything was dictated by what's going on at church. And I realized I'm letting the church run my life and not Jesus Christ. And I don't mean that to sound insulting. I hope it doesn't take it that way at all. Because I love you guys. I love what I do. But Christ is supposed to be the one that guides and directs. And I heard a great teaching. It was out of Mark chapter 1, where it talked about how Jesus would rise up early in the morning and seek time with God the Father to know what his schedule was supposed to be for the day. And I try to do that every day before I get up, is either read that passage in Mark 1 or pray very simply, Lord, I don't know what texts are awaiting me, I don't know what emails, I don't know what phone calls are going to happen today, but this day is yours. What do you want me to do today? So then I get my marching orders from the Lord, and then that sets the priority for the day. But how often do we get up in the day and we already got our own list of what we got to do? And then we kind of work God in a little bit here and a little bit there. But what would happen if we'd make him a priority? What would happen? Now, I know what you're thinking. He is a priority. And I agree, he's a priority in my life. But realistically, sometimes I don't put him there. I got up this morning, and my older three boys love coming to the 830 service. I don't know why. They just think it's the greatest thing in the world to come to the 830 service. So what happens is I take the older three to the 830, and they stick around for the 830. They stick around from the 10. And I always tell them, hey, you've got to get yourselves up and going. We've got to leave the house at 8, make sure we're out here in time, etc. So I get up, I get around, I get cleaned up, and I'm coming out into the living room. It's about 730. As I'm coming out of the living room at 7.30, I see Elias, my oldest, sitting on the couch. And he's reading his Bible and doing devotions. And I thought, wow. Because we've been trying to ingrain it in this idea of what's important first. Get up in the morning and do what's important first. And I just saw that and I thought, wow, Lord. Despite, despite all the screw-ups of my wife, he still <laughs> is moving forward in the Lord. I'm just kidding. Um, but you stop and you see that. And to be honest, I don't say that to elevate me or my kids because trust me, we got family problems. I, I mean, we all do. I stop and I realize, what about me, Lord? What about me? You know, would I, would I realize the importance of what that is? I mean, I preach it to them. I teach it to them. But am I living it? Because that is what matters. I look at that word one more time, verse 5, compelled by the Spirit, pressed by the Spirit. Boy, I want that. Lord, give us a burden. Give us a burden for the things of eternity, because that's all that matters. And it gets really difficult. <clears throat> because what happens? He leaves, verse 7, he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshipped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed on the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. So he leaves the synagogue to basically say, it's done. He just goes right next door, verse 7, to Justice's house. Don't you think that would agitate the Jews a little bit? Paul's gone, but he's really right next door. But did you see what happened? Verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, gets saved. That's amazing. I heard a teaching one time saying, do you really want to change the town you live in? Find the most despicable person in that town and lead them to Christ. See, so often we start at the top and work our way down. What happens if we start at the bottom and work our way up? If you were in Corinthians, or excuse me, in the city of Corinth... Who would be the least likely person to probably come know Jesus? I would probably say the ruler of the synagogue. That would be kind of amazing. 
But that's exactly what happened. The ruler of the synagogue gets saved, and it's a domino effect. He believed on the Lord, verse 8, then his household believed on the Lord, and next thing you know, you see this little revival happening in the church at Corinth, hearing, believing, and being baptized. That's what the Lord does. The spiritual domino effect. Who would have ever thought the ruler of the synagogue would get saved? Truth be told, we all have somebody in our mind that we really wonder if they will ever come to know Christ. I mean, they are so far gone. You know, I mean, we believe the Lord can move and we don't want to put God in a box. But could they really come to know Christ? Well, if Paul can get saved, anybody can get saved. Ruler of the synagogue getting saved. See, I have these little what I call Ecclesiastes moments. Ecclesiastes is one of my favorite books in the Bible. It's a very dark book, though. It's basically this guy having this little woe is me moment that's going on for a while. And we all have these spiritual moments of nothing's working out, it doesn't work out, everything's falling apart. But then, Crispus gets saved. Amazing. You know, I was just thinking about everything that goes on behind the scenes and how much stuff happens. You know, every now and then we have these moments out here where you stop and say, Lord, come on, is it is it working? You know, are people really coming to know you? Are marriages really being touched and healed? Are these situations ever going to work out? It seems so dark. But then, you know, I was talking to Karen on the phone this week, and she was telling me about what's going on at the fair, and you have 1,500-plus prayer requests of people you got a chance to pray with and pray over. Wow. Pop out here to the back-to-school giveaway, and there's kids lined up to get haircuts, and people are getting stuff and being blessed that way. You're like, wow, Lord, you're moving. You're working. And that's the thing we got to stop and realize that sometimes when we look at the situation, if we just focus on verse 6, opposed, blasphemed, etc. Yeah, but verse 8, Crispus is getting saved. What a blessing that is. But then if we could just end right there at verse 8, wouldn't that be great? Let's end on a high note. Crispus gets saved, everything's great. Problem is we have verse 9. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision saying, Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. Now, here's really kind of a silly point, but it needs to be mentioned. If the Lord needs to tell Paul to not be afraid, that means that Paul was afraid. You don't tell somebody to not be afraid if they're not afraid. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, if I come up to you and we're just sitting here talking at church and I say, Hey, by the way, don't be afraid. First thing you're thinking is, what do you know that I don't know? Paul obviously was struggling with this. See, we have this tendency to elevate Paul to this amazing stature of a man. And he was. He was also human. Paul had already by this time been beaten, being whipped. He's been in prison. You think going through the back of Paul's mind, it's like, okay, you know what? Anytime I taste a little bit of spiritual success, that's usually where the beating starts. Do not be afraid. Do you know how easy it is to say that? Do not be afraid, but speak. Do not keep silent, for I am with you. With the boys, they battle fear a lot, like every little kid does. So our rules are simple. If they're afraid about something, the first thing they need to do is pray about it. The second thing they need to do is quote Matthew 10.31. Simple verse, Jesus said, do not be afraid. Then, if they're still scared, they need to come get us. That's how we, that's how we work it. Trying to train them to go to the Lord for strength first. So the other day, Layden, our four-year-old, had to. Uh, it was time to go to bed. So I sent him to the bathroom and said, go brush your teeth. So he turned the corner to go to the bathroom and the hallway light was off. So it was dark. Now he could just flip the light on, right? He, he said, he stopped, and I knew he was scared, so I knew what was happening. 
And he knew what I was going to say. You know, did you pray? Did you read the verse, etc.? So before he says anything, he goes, Dad, I know Jesus is here. I know Jesus is with me. But will you please come with me? Now, I said, no, you fearful little boy. No, I'm kidding. No. <laughs> Isn't that truth? I'm speaking as a 37-year-old man. I know Jesus is with me. I know Jesus is here, but sometimes I get scared. And can you please come with me? Now, it's not necessarily wrong to desire that human person with you. We just talked about earlier about how Paul obviously seemed revitalized with Silas and Timothy and Aquila and Priscilla. It's a blessing. But if I'm allowing another person, another human, to be my security blanket, that's not right. There's nothing wrong with wanting a brother or sister in the Lord to encourage you and to help you. But you've got to have your foundation right first of what Christ does for you. Christ promises, do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. And that promise is not only for Paul, but for us, because Jesus said later in the book of Hebrews, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's always with you. Now we know this, but why does it affect us? Because I'm willing to bet that if we took an honest survey, how many of you this week struggle with fear or worry? Now let's just be blunt. If God said, do not worry, and God said, do not be afraid, if I worry or I'm afraid, I just did something God asked me not to do, which means that is sin. So when I allow worry to control my life, it's a sin. When I allow fear to control my life, it's a sin, because I'm not allowing my faith in Christ. Now, we don't like to hear that, because we like to think situations are so overwhelming that I have the right to be worried. I have the right to be afraid. And really what Christ is telling us is, listen, if I am with you, you have nothing to fear. That's a hard teaching. It's a hard reality to make happen. It's easy to teach it. It's hard to live it out. Paul had to be told, do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. Why? Because maybe Paul was reaching a point of fear where he didn't want to say anything anymore. How many times has this guy been beaten, been whipped, been thrown in jail? Maybe he was ready to be done. Let's talk about this a little bit more. Can you turn to Isaiah chapter 7? Isaiah chapter 7. We know the reality of it. But do we allow it to impact us? Isaiah chapter 7. What you have here in Isaiah chapter 7, we have King Ahaz, king of Judah. What's going on is, you've got to remember at this time, in Isaiah chapter 7, the... Jewish nation is divided into two nations. There's the northern tribes of Israel, and then you have the southern tribes of Israel, which is Judah and Benjamin. King Ahaz is the king of the southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin. What's happening is this, verse 2. It was told to the house of David, that would be the southern kingdom, Judah, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. So, the forces of Syria are to the north. They're coming down to get us, verse 2. So his heart and the heart of his people... We're moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. That's a fun little phrase. The heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved by, with the wind. What does that mean? That means they were shaking in their boots. That's what that means. They were scared. They were absolutely scared. So what happens is the Lord sends Isaiah, verse 3, go talk to Ahaz. So as he goes and talks to him, verse 4, he says to him, take heed, be quiet, do not fear, or be faint-hearted. 
For these two stubs of smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezna in Syria and the son of Remela. Basically what he tells Ahaz is, listen, these nations that want to attack you, they're little twigs that have been burned up. Nothing to be afraid of. Then he even goes one step further. Verse 6. They say, let us go up against Judah and trouble it, and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves, and set a king over them, the son of Tabal. Basically what they say is, let's go up to Judah now, let's take it over. God knows this. What happens in verse 7, thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Ramallah's son. If you will not believe, surely you should not be established. Basically, God says, they don't want to attack you. They are going to overtake you. It's not going to happen. Now, let's bring this all together. Verse 2, the army from the north is coming down. Everybody's completely scared. Verse 4, do not be afraid. Do not be quiet. They're just two little stubs, two little sticks. Don't worry about it. Verse 7, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. God says, it's not going to happen. But what I want to focus on is the end of verse 9. If you will not believe, surely you should not be established. One translation says this, Unless your faith is firm, I cannot make you stand firm. Basically what God is telling Paul is this, Don't worry, no one's going to hurt you. What is he telling King Ahaz? Don't worry, they're not going to hurt you. But he throws this little thing in the end of verse 9 saying, Yeah, but if you don't want to believe it, I can't make it happen. Is that the truth? God promises you, look at all the promises of God. In all things he works for the good in your life. Psalm says that he is good and does good. Jeremiah says that he knows the plans that he has for your life. Plans not to harm you, but to bring you peace. Jesus said, I'm with you always. You know all this. But there's one little clause to this. I can't make you believe it. You have to choose to accept that. Do you know how many Christians know those passages, know those verses? They may even have them written down on their fridge, on their wall, what have you, marked, underlined, circled in their Bible. They know it, but they don't live it. And when you want to sit there and say, Lord, how can they have this head knowledge, but not have this heart? And God says, I can't make them. He tells King Ahaz, you're going to be fine, but I can't make you believe this. Whatever situation you're facing here today, whatever you brought in, it's going to be okay. But I can't make you believe that. I can't make you believe that the Lord is good and does good. I mean, I know you know it. I can't make you believe that he's with you and you have nothing to be afraid of. I can't make you. And that's one of the biggest frustrations I think I run into as a pastor, is you want to take this knowledge, then make them believe it and live it. That's a personal choice. Ahaz has to decide, do I believe it? Paul has to stop and say, do I believe that I'm going to be okay? What does Paul do? Well, we can see by verse 11 his answer. He continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. He spent a year and a half there, obviously boldly proclaiming Christ. So he lived it. He believed it. But then what happens? Verse 12, when Galio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, This fellow persuades men to worship contrary to the law. Finally, the Jews had enough. They, they basically grab Paul, mob mentality, take him to the governmental lure, uh, rulers and say, Be done. This guy's persuading Jews to go against the law. Do something about it. Verse 14, when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look it to yourselves. For I do not want to be judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Basically, Galileo just basically says, Listen, this has nothing to do with me. So you guys figure it out. I think there's two points on this. The first one, that idea of it has nothing to do with me. 
How many times do you get yourself involved in something that has nothing to do with you? And then it comes back to bite you? If I'm sitting in my house and two of the boys come to my room and they start saying, Dad, he did this, Dad, he did that, I usually stop and interrupt him. And I usually say something to the effect of, you're both brothers, you're both Christians, go into another room and figure it out. Don't, don't pull me into this. Now, if it's something major, obviously we have to be pulled into it. But a lot of minor things, I don't have to be pulled into this. You guys go figure it out. Act like Christians. I say that all the time. Act like Christians. Figure this out. How different would your life be or your work situations be if you would stop and say, Hey, this situation has nothing to do with me. I'm just going to step back and pray silently for him. Wouldn't that be life-changing? Here's the thing, though. The people that most commonly butt into other people's business, I really don't think they realize what they're doing. I really think they think they're being helpful. I really think they think that this is a good thing. But there's so many passages in the Bible that says, just stay out of it. If you're that heartbroken, concerned about it, fast and pray and let the Spirit lead. If the Spirit says to go talk to them, go talk to them. But a lot of times, more can be accomplished by just stepping back and giving it over to the Lord. There's a lot of wisdom there. Now, the other thing I want to say is this. Look at verse 14. When Paul was about to open his mouth, Paul didn't even get a chance to speak. Did you catch earlier in verse 9? Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. God specifically told him to speak and not keep silent. And then when it came time to speak, verse 14, God didn't even give him a chance. I've come to this conclusion. I can do more for the kingdom of God a lot of times if I just keep my mouth shut. Sometimes I do more harm than good by speaking. And there's so many passages in Proverbs about sometimes just don't do anything. I shouldn't say don't do anything, don't say anything. How many times do words get us in trouble? There's obviously a time to talk, and if the Lord is leading you to speak, I can't stress that enough, then speak. But there's a lot of times where the best thing we can do is say, you know what, that sounds like a tough situation. Let's just pray about it together. What we like to do is, hey, let's analyze it from every angle. And then do nothing. Or then we do this trite little prayer at the end. How about if we just say, you know what, that's a tough one. Let's just pray about that right now. Let's just give it over to the Lord and wisdom sometimes and not opening our mouth. To finish this up, verse 17, Then all the Greeks took Solentheus, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Galileo took no notice of these things. Poor Solentheus. What did he do wrong? The only thing I can think of is that he's the ruler of the synagogue now, because we know back in verse 8, Crispus got saved. So a year and a half later, the whole town is falling apart here spiritually. They're coming to know Christ. Did these Jews take it out on him? Hey, you're the ruler of the synagogue? You're supposed to be doing something? You're supposed to be putting a stop to this? You can't even stop this guy from telling people about Jesus, and you're supposed to be the ruler of the synagogue? Sounds like they took their anger out on him. Now, do you ever stop and wonder why? I mean, this guy is so synthious. I mean, seriously, what did he do wrong? Why did the Lord allow this to happen? Here's this guy that's the ruler of the synagogue. I mean, don't you think he was kind of happy in some ways? I mean, don't you think he went home and told his wife, guess what, I got promoted? You know, remember Crispus got saved? Yeah, let's not talk about Crispus anymore. I'm now the ruler of the synagogue. Wouldn't that be kind of cool? Next thing you know, a year later, they're beating him up. That's the unfairness. This is the struggle that people have. I hear this a lot when I talk to someone about the world and about the Lord. In this classic, why does a God of love allow this to happen? Why does a God of love do this? You know, here's this guy, Sothentheus, that didn't do anything wrong. He's taking the beating and the punishment by what Paul's doing. How is that fair? How is that love? How is that the Lord being good? Well, let's see what happens here. Can you go to 1 Corinthians? 
Obviously, 1 Corinthians is written to the church at Corinth. Paul, spending a year and a half there, through the Lord, built up this church, and as he's left, problems arose, and so therefore he writes 1 and 2 Corinthians to them to address these problems. What does this have to do with Solentheus? Well, let's see. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sothentius, our brother. Now, we could stop here and say, is this the same Sothentius? I mean, maybe it was a different guy. This is the facts we know. Sothentius was the ruler of the synagogue. We end in Acts 18 with him getting beat. We now jump ahead to Paul writing to the same church at Corinth, and there's a guy by the same name there that's now saved. Now, is it the same guy? We don't know. But I find it very interesting that the Lord would want to mention in Acts 18 when writing the scriptures about this guy, and that Paul would want to mention him, this guy by name. It sure seems like the Lord is trying to take two loose ends and tie this together. This sure looks like this could be the same guy. Now, what is the point of this? Sometimes when you have unsaved friends and loved ones, you so desperately want them to know Christ. And you see their life falling apart in front of you. And, I, and I've done this a lot. My prayers become prayers of desperation. Lord, bring them out of this pit. Lord, help them through this. And you just see these people keep making bad choices again and again and again. And you're just heartbroken. And you're just like, Lord, help them. Lift them out of this struggle and this pain and this suffering. Or maybe even believers. You see a brother and a sister in the Lord. And you're like, Lord, just stop. But, in Sothentius' case, doesn't it kind of seem like that maybe him hitting rock bottom in Acts 18 may have been enough to get his attention? I mean, think about this from his perspective. You're the ruler of the synagogue. You, you obviously got that position because you devoted yourself to the Jewish faith. You had to be a man of honor and blameless. And so, the way these people that you're trying to teach and grow in the Jewish faith, the way they respond to that... Is they beat you out of anger? Wouldn't that get your attention a little bit? Wouldn't that make you stop and you think, why am I doing this? Maybe the Lord allowed that to happen, to get this guy's attention, to save him for all of eternity. Point being this, sometimes I wonder with my unsafe friends and loved ones, when I see them struggling and I'm desperately praying for the Lord to stop. Maybe the Lord is saying, James, the most loving thing I can do is make their life difficult. Because from the times of difficulty, they're going to see all they need is Christ. I mean, stop and you think about it. I know a lot of your testimonies. A lot of your testimonies are you're here and you're walking with the Lord because your life completely, utterly fell apart. And when you hit rock bottom, you stopped and you said, I got nothing. And that's when Jesus tapped you on the shoulder and said, you got me. And I wonder, with Sothentheus... Did he have to go through that horrible, difficult time for his eyes to be open to stop and say, Boy, this isn't working out the way I wanted. It's a difficult thing to say, but I'm just asking you this. Maybe you have somebody in your life, and once again, you desperately want them to know Christ. Maybe the most loving thing for them is to go through struggles for them to realize how difficult life can be and the only foundation we have and the only foundation we need is Christ. That obviously worked in Sothentius' life to get his attention, to bring him to the Lord. And next thing we know, he's a brother. He's a brother in Christ. We covered a lot of things today. Let's just go back and I want to re-hit a couple of these as we get ready to close up. We're introduced to Priscilla and Aquila. 
We'll talk more about them next week. I hope you can make it for that. What a wonderful ministry that they have. We see Paul. Look at these words again. He reasoned with them. Verse 4, he persuaded them. Verse 5, he's compelled by the Spirit. Ah, Lord, give us that. Give us that burden to go talk to people and, and to build relationships with them and talk to them and present the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at the fruit that comes out of that. Crispus, getting saved, ruler of the synagogue. But then you see Paul, do not be afraid. Keep talking. Fear is a powerful thing. But Jesus is always with us. And He's always there for us. We should never walk in fear, but we walk in faith. We should never keep silent, but we should speak as the Lord leads us and guides us through the Spirit, because God is with us. And then you see Sothentius. I think it's the same guy. Coming to know the Lord. And it just reminds me, Lord, sometimes the most loving thing you can do is allow the floor to fall out of somebody's life to get their attention. For all of our unsaved loved ones, we need to pray for them. That when those situations happen, that they're truly seeking Him in all ways and all things. Mario, if you're going to come forward here for the final song, let's pray. Lord, help us. Help us to do exactly what Your Word said. To be compelled, burdened by the Spirit to tell people about You. To reason with them. To persuade them through Your Spirit. I pray, Lord, that if there's someone here walking in fear, that You would show them to not be afraid, but to walk in the strength and power of Your might. They know it, but then help them to live that. And Lord, for unsaved friends and loved ones, we pray that they would truly come to know you and your hand would be upon them as you move and work in their lives. Help us to plant seeds and water as you call and lead in your name. Amen. Some final-